you want to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 6, and we will read just the same text that we read and looked at this last week, although we will be looking in particular at 13. So yes, we've, we started this new sermon series uh, where we will be in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 uh, for a few weeks up until Easter. And uh, last week, we began by looking at the Christian's battle, the Christian's enemy, the Christian's strength. And uh, we looked at verses uh, 10, 11, and 12, uh, but we didn't quite get to verse 13 yet. And so that's what we are going to be looking at this morning. We're going to be getting into verse 13, which is kind of the conclusion of, of uh, this, uh, what, what Paul says in verses 10 through 12. Uh, this is the kind of conclusion of the introduction uh, to the spiritual armor passage. And, um, and so we'll start uh, uh, looking at verse 13 here this morning. And uh, next week, Pastor Dan will get us into uh, looking at the actual pieces of armor. We'll, we'll look at the first three pieces of armor that Paul speaks of in verses uh, 14 and 15. But for now, let's, uh, let's stand for the reading of God's holy and precious word. And again, we'll look at verse 13, but we'll start in uh, reading verse 10 and and, and onward and and conclude with reading verse 13 here. Let's listen to God's word with reverence and joy. The Apostle Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day And having done all, to stand firm. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, you are like the sun in your word. Your word is like the shining rays that we bask in, receive warmth and nourishment. And so help us to to enjoy the warmth and nourishment of your word today and to be so strengthened by it that we might live in light of its glow this week. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Well, this last week I came across um, an interesting bit of history in my studies. In 1990, of course, as you probably know, uh, the United States was engaged in, in the Gulf Wars. Uh, the U.S. led 35 nations into war with Iraq due to their invasion and, and occupation of Kuwait and uh, due to the subsequent kind of oil disputes and price disputes and all that. And it lasted only about five months. It was short. Um, but part of what's interesting is that it, it didn't take long for it to be uh, just apparent that the Iraqi forces had lost. And uh, as they were retreating, they engaged in, in uh, you know, what's often called a, a um, scorched earth policy. Uh, they sought to destroy and to decimate as much as they could on their way out, uh, burning oil wells and, and whatnot. And they, they had lost the war, but they still wanted to, as a kind of final act of desperation and revol- revolt, destroy as much as they possibly could in order to, you know, kind of obstruct the endeavors of the invading armies as they invaded. And now we have a very similar kind of battle on our hands. Last week we, we discussed this cosmic battle that we find ourselves in as God's people, and we discussed our spiritual enemies, Satan and demons, who intend to do us harm. And they want to accuse and discourage us. They want to tempt to uh, divide and deceive us. They want to make our mission as God's people unfruitful. They want to destroy us if they can. And yet we closed our time together by remembering that Christ has already conquered. Just like Winston Churchill 
Bill, after the, the U.S. joined the Allied forces in World War II, we can write it down, ah, so we won. We have won because Christ has come, He's lived, He's died, He's risen, He's ascended, He's sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts through faith, and He has promised to one day come again. And with Christ risen and ascended and within the Holy Spirit, we can't lose. We can't lose. We've already won. But what's more is that Satan and his demonic cohorts, they know this. They know that they've lost. They know that Christ is victorious and that because he's victorious, therefore so are we. But now they've been in desperation taken up something of a scorched earth policy. They're trying to inflict as much damage as possible while retreating, while declining, while losing ground. And so Paul comes to this point in this, in this letter to the Ephesians, to the local church in Ephesus, and he reminds them of this spiritual battle against our enemy, and he exhorts us to ready ourselves to fight within it. He exhorts us to be ready for the enemy's attacks. He exhorts us to do everything we can to fight and to withstand our defeated foe. He exhorts us to be strengthened in Christ and to do everything we can to withstand the enemy's attacks. And that's our big idea this morning. And we're going to unpack it by looking at the Lord's armor, the enemy's attacks, and the believers all. And first, though, we see the Lord's armor. Paul's instruction regarding our enemy and and our battle that we looked at last week leads him to this kind of concluding exhortation in the introduction to the spiritual armor text. And he says this, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Now, at risk of sounding curmudgeonly, um, I think it's safe to say that an issue that... uh, people in my generation and younger often have, sometimes have, is that we know little about how to properly dress. Uh, You know, I've struggled with this, and I've noticed that others often do too, Um, usually men more than women. And you'll likely notice this, you know, at at like the way young men will often dress at weddings and and funerals and, and other like events. If you stroll through your average college campus, you will see a sea of pajama pants And hoodies, you know, with the hood up and other various oddities like that. I remember when I was uh, on staff at Veritas Columbus, we had this summer intern one year who would come in every day wearing the exact same gym shorts. The exact same ones. I'm not kidding you. And uh, I've kind of taken a liking to this particular website called The Art of Manliness. And uh, the guy who runs it, he's simply trying to engage with a plethora of young men to uh, kind of equip them for various skills in life, and including how to dress properly. And uh, he'll post a number of articles uh, about how to build a wardrobe and what to wear to various occasions, how to dress properly and all of that. And I share that because it's really what Paul is trying to do for us here. He's, he's trying to help us, trying to, to show us how to dress ourselves properly as God's people who are facing a real spiritual battle and who have a real spiritual enemy and who who intends to do us real spiritual harm. That's what the phrase take up means here. We we might also communicate this exhortation to put on or to get dressed in, which are phrases that Paul likes to use elsewhere. This particular attire that he's telling us to put on here, he says take take up or, or put on or get dressed in, calls the armor of God. That's what he tells us to dress ourselves in. Now, this is is interesting, and it requires us to do a little bit of work here. You know, often, many people will will talk about this text as if uh, the armor here is modeled after the armor that you would find on a a Roman soldier. Uh, And that's likely partly true, okay? So, of course, we have to remember uh, that Paul is in the Greco-Roman world, and he's writing this letter from prison, and so while in prison, he's, he's seeing and interacting with Roman soldiers all day, every day, and he sees their, their armor, the armor, the particular pieces of armor that they're wearing. And so he very well may have gotten the idea for this text from that, by looking at that each and every single day. But there's also rich biblical imagery at work here. You see, because if you go on to look at the particular pieces of armor, you'll see 
that this is not the first place that we see some of these pieces of armor, but we actually see Paul echoing here already existing biblical imagery. So in verse 14, Paul tells us to stand having fastened on the belt of truth. But if you go back to Isaiah 11.5, you'll actually see that the coming Messiah, the promised Messiah, who we know as Jesus of Nazareth, is said to be coming with righteousness as the belt of his waist and faithfulness as the belt of his loins. And similarly, in verse 14, Paul tells us to stand having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And then in verse 17, he tells us to take the helmet of salvation. But if you go back to Isaiah 59, 17, you'll see that God, as Isaiah is foretelling these coming acts of judgment and redemption, God is being described as having put on righteousness as a breastplate and as having a helmet of salvation on his head. And likewise, in verse 15, if you look at verse 15, Paul tells us that as shoes for your feet, that we are to put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Well, that sounds remarkably similar to Isaiah 52, 7, where the prophet Isaiah tells of the coming Messiah and says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns, which of course we know speaks Christ and his coming and his proclamation of the good news of the kingdom of God coming in himself. And so part of what I want you to see here is that the armor here is God's armor. Like, this is divine armor. In calling this the armor of God, Paul is not merely saying that it's armor that God gives to us, although that's true. He's saying that this this is armor that God himself wears as he engages in his mission of salvation and redemption. So John Stott um, summarizes it so clearly and so well as he so often does. He says the point is that this equipment is forged and furnished by God. In the Old Testament, it is God himself, the Lord of hosts, who is depicted as a warrior fighting to vindicate his people. Still today, the armor and weapons are his, but now he shares them with us. So you see here, our God is pictured as a warrior in Scripture. And as his people, we are also pictured and exhorted to be his warrior people through Christ. In Christ, God recruits us for war, and he furnishes us with everything needful for the battle. In justification, God gives us his righteousness as a breastplate to protect our hearts from the accusations of the devil. He gives us salvation as a helmet so that we have assurance and confidence in the saving power of Christ. He gives us shoes to advance the mission of his gospel of his peace in the world. He gives us his son and his word as truth like a belt to secure and hold all of this together. He gives us the gift of faith as a shield to protect us from the fiery darts and deceptions and temptations and accusations of Satan. And he gives us his word to wield as a sword to slay our demonic foes when they come us with temptation and accusation. And we'll get more into these particular pieces of armor uh, in, in the rest of the series. But suffice it to say here, what we need to see is that this is God's armor that he shares with us in our union with Christ. In Christ, God, God unites us to Christ. And, and in Christ, we're given everything needful to engage in this battle. We're given everything needful In order to obtain victory, he covers us with his armor, much like Saul covered David in his armor prior to his battle with Goliath, only this armor fits perfectly because of our union with Christ. Now, at this point, I feel I must address something here. Likely, there could be those present, those listening on the live stream who who hear this and go, see, this is part of what's wrong with with Christianity and with religion in general, they, they, they view God as this warrior and themselves as, as warriors, and this will inevitably tend to lead to all kinds of, uh, all the kinds of violence that we see religion cause and to wars between rival religions and all of that. 
And of course, you know, there have been times in the past, we ought to readily admit, there have been times in the past wherein professing Christians have taken up the, the sword in the name of God and tried to advance the Christian faith through violence and bloodshed and war, but that's not what Paul is talking about here. That's rather clear. If you look at verse 12, where Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's his way of saying that the kind of warfare that he's talking about here is not physical. In, in our seeking to advance the Christian mission, we don't do so by, by swords of metal and steel. We do so by the sword of the word of God. Ours is a spiritual fought, fight fought with weapons of words and ideas and virtue and spiritual strength. Paul says this precise thing in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. When he says that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You see, he's saying that our battle and our mission advances by prayer, by the word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and through faith. By, by tearing down strongholds of wrong thinking and wrong behavior through compelling arguments and dependent prayer. Our war and mission doesn't advance through taking up the sword and shedding blood. In fact, if you look back down the corridors of church history, our battle, our war actually advances through our own blood being shed and violence being done against us when other people don't like our message. And Jesus actually told us to expect that to happen, and that when it happens, we're to respond by loving and praying for our enemies and turning the other cheek. And so in all reality, those professing Christians who have sought to advance Christianity through shedding blood in the past do so actually in direct contradiction to the, to the Christian faith, not in a manner consistent with it. We don't wrestle, we don't battle, we don't fight against flesh and blood. Our battle is a spiritual one. Our war is one of spirit. And so we must don the, the spiritual armor of God. We must take on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and the war boots of the gospel of peace. We must be properly dressed for our spiritual battle because if we are living the Christian life and on the Christian mission, undoubtedly we will meet with the enemy's attack. Which brings us to our next point, the enemy's attack. I'll pick it back up in verse 13. Paul says that you're to don armor so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. You're to take up the armor of God so that you're able to withstand or remain steadfast in the evil day. So what is Paul talking about here when he says the evil day? Uh, this has been a, a topic of some debate, actually, and uh, it, it's interesting that this is not the first time that Paul actually uses uh, this, this kind of language in Ephesians. Earlier in the book, if you look at Ephesians 5, 15, and 16, You'll see Paul say this, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. The days are evil. And here, Paul is simply talking about um, the age that we live in between Christ's first and second comings. These are days of warfare. We live between the time of Christ's first and second comings. These are days of war, days we're in. Satan and his demonic army are, are taking that scorched earth kind of policy, seeking to do as much damage as possible while they retreat in defeat. And so some have looked at the similarity between Paul's language in 5, 15, and 16, and here in Ephesians 6, 13, and said that Paul is writing about the same thing here. The evil day in verse 13 is just that age that, that, that we live in between Christ's uh, first and second comings. However, that doesn't really do justice to the, uh, the differences in Paul's language here, does it? And notice the definite article, the evil day. The evil day. And notice the word day is in the singular here. And so it seems that Paul is not simply talking about the, the days that we live in, in between Christ's first and second comings. He's talking about a particular day, and what particular day is he talking about? He's talking about really any day in which you meet with attacks from Satan and his demonic cohorts. We talked about this last week. Satan's schemes, Satan's methods. He will seek to accuse you. 
He will seek to divide you from other Christians. He will seek to to tempt you. He will seek to lure you into a spate of spiritual lethargy. He will seek to destroy you with any and many of his various schemes and methods. And the evil day referenced here is the day in which those attacks come. And so to maybe briefly illustrate this, we, we maybe think of this entire age that we live in between Christ's first and second comings, as a time of war. We live in a spiritual war, an age of spiritual war. And yet the evil day that we're living in are the days of battle within that war. So if you watch any war movie, like Saving Private Ryan, I watched that recently, and that's maybe one of the best movies of all time. The small group of men led by Tom Hanks' character, Captain John Miller, are obviously in the war throughout the entirety of the movie, and yet they experience times that many, many of us would, would consider somewhat normal. They eat meals together, right? They, 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 they play games together. They, they talk about good memories with each other. They argue and fight with each other. They, talk, they, they, they engage in these, these, these good times, even in the middle of a war, and yet there are also days of, of battle in that war. They fight in the Battle of Normandy in the opening scenes of the movie. They fight in a battle in the town of Ramel, in the closing scenes of the movie where they find Private Ryan. They're, they're always in war, but there are those battles in the midst of it that we might call the evil day. Well, similarly, we as Christians live in a spiritual war. The days are evil, Paul says. And yet within that war, there are days of battle. That's the evil day. There are days in this life wherein the enemy will attack you wherein he will seek to carry out his evil schemes against you. And how will he do this? Well, he'll do this in a number of ways. Remember, he's taken this scorched earth policy. There's nothing off limits, no scheme too dastardly that he will not seek to carry it out against you. He could attack in any number of ways. And and let's just consider a few examples of how he might attack or where he might attack. First, he will seek to isolate or divide you from other church members, from other Christians, from your, from your church. I think this point is particularly relevant. I know we talked a little bit about it last week, but I bring it up again because it's very relevant and, and consistent with this theme that we find in Ephesians. If you look at Ephesians 2 through 4, you'll see this predominant theme of the book emerging that God's people are united in Christ and are to live in a way consistent with that reality. So God has reconciled the people to himself from different nations and backgrounds and cultures, and the local church is to be a tangible, localized expression of that reality. The way that we live with one another and love one another and treat one another and care for one another, and are patient with one another, is meant to show forth the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it's not an empty word, but it's a powerful word that changes and transforms people and brings people together into the family of God. God, this is a prominent purpose for the coming of the gospel, that God would have one united, reconciled people for himself from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so we ought to see Paul's exhortation in Ephesians 6 and through 20 years relating to that theme of church unity. The reasoning is, is, is really fairly simple. If God has purposed to unite a different and diverse people into his church, then Satan inevitably will seek to thwart that purpose. John Stott makes this very point when he writes this. Is God's plan to create a new society? Then Satan and demons will do their utmost to destroy it. Has God, through Jesus Christ, broken down the walls dividing people of different races and cultures from each other? Then the devil will, through his emissaries, strive to rebuild them. Does God intend his reconciled and redeemed people to live together in harmony and purity? Then the powers of hell will scatter among them seeds of discord and sin. It is with these powers that we are told to wage war. We need to see the evil day, the day of attack, the day of battle will at times involve schemes to isolate you and divide you from the people of God. Satan will see when you... offense at another believer in your church 
And he will get in there and prod and pry and and try to get you to dwell on it and to turn it over in your mind over and over and over again. He will seek to tempt you to nurse that bitterness in your heart toward other believers. And remember Paul's exhortation in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So we we usually think of that as, as marriage advice. That's good marriage advice. That could be a secondary level of application. But think about the first level of application. Paul is writing to a local church here in which there are married people, yes, but he's not writing exclusively to married couples. He's writing to a whole local church and he's telling them, do not let your anger that you have toward one another fester because it gives an opportunity to the devil to thwart God's purpose of unity in the church. It will isolate you and divide you, and that's what Satan wants to do. And so this is part of what you need to be on guard against in the evil day. Satan's attack against the church to isolate or divide you. And next, he'll he'll seek to wreck your marriage. He'll seek to wreck your marriage. Satan hates Healthy Christian marriages. Simply applying the same sort of reasoning here as we did before. Again, Paul's earlier teaching and instructions regarding church unity. Now his teaching regarding spiritual warfare. We could surmise that Satan's attack will involve tax against church unity. Similarly, just prior to our text here, look at Ephesians 5, 22-33. Paul writes about the sacredness and the primacy of marriage. And he tells us that marriage is is meant to be a living portrait of the relationship between Christ and the church and that husbands are to love their wives as they love themselves and are meant to sacrificially serve their wives as the heads of their households, just as Christ loved and served the church as the head of her. And in turn, wives are to submit to their husbands to show forth how the church responds to the loving, serving leadership of Christ. It's a small, living portrait of a beautiful, cosmic story that God is telling in human history. Well, inevitably then, Satan will seek to destroy and wreck marriages. He will seek to to slash and dash those living portraits. He hates it when Christians have healthy marriages. He will do whatever he can to interfere with the relational connection between a husband and a wife. He will try to get them to be emotionally distant from each other. He he will seek to distract them from the health and vitality of their marriage. He will seek to distract them from one another by causing them to be or tempting them to be overly preoccupied with work or raising children or hobbies or whatever good things but not meant to distract you from loving and serving your spouse. He will seek to interfere with the, with the sexual intimacy of a married couple, tempting to pornography or masturbation or even adultery. Those days of temptation are coming. Those days of temptation and distraction and sin are coming. The evil day will involve Satan attacking your marriage. Be on guard. Be alert for the evil day. And likewise, he'll seek to destroy your children. Just as Paul, prior to our text, discusses marriage, he also discusses the raising of children in Christian households. Ephesians 6, 4, he tells fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 6, 1, a text we often quote in our household Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. You see, God cares deeply about families and how they function, and he cares deeply about having and raising children in order to pass on a legacy of grace and faith so that the gospel would be sustained and go forth in the world. In other words, having children is part of the strategy of fulfilling the Great Commission. In our households, we're to to raise little disciples of Christ who know him, who trust him, who follow him. And this is one of the most effective strategies for obeying the Great Commission, actually multiplying and and making disciples. And so, of course, Satan would love nothing more than to interfere with this by attacking and, and destroying your children. 
leading them to reject and run away from the gospel and the word of God. Be on guard, be alert for his attack upon your children. Let's do a couple more. He'll seek to, to compromise your integrity at work. And you know, I, I probably don't talk about your work enough. You, you spend so much of your life there. You devote so much of your energy there. And it's also probably the place where largely you have most opportunity to live as a witness for Christ in the world. It's probably where you interact most with those outside the faith. And so for a multitude of reasons, your integrity and witness there is so incredibly important and needful. And so Satan would love nothing more than to compromise your integrity and compromise your witness there. And there's a great deal of temptation that comes in your life and work. Temptations to participate in, in language, crude, inappropriate joking. There's temptation there to not speak up Christ and his people are maligned. Temptation there to waste time at work while you're getting paid by looking at social media or, or, or playing games on your phone or what have you, which is stealing, by the way. There's, there's temptation toward corrupt business and financial dealings and, and, and more in any of these. If you give in to temptation, your witness is compromised, your integrity is compromised, and Satan is pleased. Evil day. Might involve Satan seeking to tempt you and compromise your integrity at work. And lastly, he'll seek to create contention between you and your neighbors. And this could be your neighbors at work, in your neighborhood, or, or, or anywhere. I just mean other human beings that you interact with on a regular basis, particularly those outside the faith. We've already discussed the, 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 the problem of our temptation and sin and compromise integrity and compromise witness. But what's more is that Satan will often create contention between a Christian and their neighbors, sometimes to no fault of your own, although sometimes it might be your fault, that leads to persecution at worst or at best a Christian being marginalized from others. We see an example of this in Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11, when Jesus addresses the church in Smyrna. And he tells them, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days, you'll have tribulation. So was it actually the devil who physically threw them into prison? No, it was probably governing authorities, their neighbors who brought charges against them. But Jesus says here that it's actually the devil. And of course, in, in, in the U.S., in Dayton, Ohio, you're not likely to be sent to prison on account of the faith or face substantial persecution like that. But still, one of Satan's schemes and, and tactics and part of his scorched earth policy is to create contention between Christians and their neighbors so that Christians, even if not persecuted outright, are maligned and marginalized and dismissed and disliked and hated. And while historically we Christians have, have not even had to deal with much of that in the West, that's not really the case anymore, is it? Sometimes. More and more, if we hold to the biblical gospel and the authority of God's word, we're viewed as part of what's wrong with the world. Some of our, our views regarding salvation and sexuality and hell, various things like that, are, are often actually viewed as immoral in the eyes of our neighbors. And thus, Christians themselves can be subjects of ridicule and loathing by people in our culture. And when that happens, it's Satan's attack. It's, it's the evil day. We must stand firm and remain steadfast. We must be courageous in those kinds of days, not giving up ground, not denying Christ for the sake of convenience or being viewed favorably by others, not responding by hatred with hatred and, and loathing in turn, but by responding with courageous kindness and patience and love toward those who loathe us. These and, of course, other kinds of attacks might characterize this this evil day that Paul refers to here, the attack of Satan when it comes to us, the day of battle. And these kinds of days will come for us all, our church, our marriages, our children, our witness at work, our, our, our relationships with our non-believing neighbors. None of these are off limits in the eyes of our enemy. And so if we're living the Christian life on the Christian mission, aggravating Satan and his cohorts, the evil day is coming. You can count on it. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 
Don't be surprised when the evil day comes. You have an enemy who hates you, who wants to destroy you, who is desperate, who's taking a scorched earth policy as his war tactics. Don't be surprised. And then Paul kind of offers this closing exhortation for us then, in light of all this, is to be ready. To be ready. Ready for this. Be ready for this day. And what are we supposed to do to be ready? He says, he's really, he says everything. Do all you can to ready, ready yourself for that day. Look at with me last at the believers all. Paul says at the end of our verse here, and having done all to stand firm. We're to take up the Lord's armor, we're to expect the evil day to come, and we're to do all that we can to prepare for that day so that when it comes, we stand firm. Again, stop. Wobbly Christians have no firm foothold in Christ. Our easy prey for the devil and Christians who shake like reeds and rushes cannot resist the wind when principalities and powers begin to blow. You don't want to be a wobbly Christian. You want to stand firm. You want to have in Christ, so that when the evil day comes, you're ready. And so then the exhortation is to do everything you need to do and do everything that you possibly can now to be ready for it. Listen, when the evil day comes, it's too late to prepare for it. And you, you don't know when it's coming. Satan is not going to give you fair warning. He's not, to come, he's not going to come to you and say, listen, you need to eat your Wheaties and stay up on your quiet time because I'm coming for you in a few weeks. It's not happening. You won't get fair warning. One day, you will meet with great temptation. You will meet with the assaulting accusation of Satan. You will meet with the great sorrow or difficulty of your life. And that's not the day for preparation. That's not the day for preparation. That is, that is not the day to begin to pursue character formation. That day doesn't produce good character, it reveals it. The evil day doesn't produce good character, it reveals it. And so the attitude and disposition and lifestyle of every believer ought to be such that they're preparing now for the evil day so that they can withstand and fight faithfully in it. Or Richard Foster typifies what the resolve of every believer should be when he wrote this. Through the Holy Spirit's guidance and strength, I will order my life according to an overall pattern that conforms to the way of Christ. Over time, this process will develop deeply ingrained habits in me so that at the moment of crisis, inner resources to act in a Christ-like manner are available. Again, the whole, through the Holy Spirit's guidance and strength, I will order my life according to an overall pattern that conforms to the way of Christ. Over time, this process will develop deeply ingrained habits in me. A moment of crisis, inner resources to act in a Christ-like manner are available. That ought to be our attitude, our disposition, our way of life here and now because the evil day is coming. The moment of crisis is coming. Temptation is coming. Accusation is coming. Opposition is coming. The great sorrow, the great difficulty of your life is coming. Prepare now. So what do we do to prepare? I'm going to name just a few things. And then I, and then I want to address those of you who have met with that day and failed in the face of it. What to do to prepare? First, commit to a church. And by that, I, I mean join a church as a member. Don't do the thing where you, you know, you would just attend long term and just refuse to actually be held accountable by other believers. Commit by submitting yourself to the care and discipline of the church. Don't be an autonomous Christian. If you do, you're setting yourself up for disaster. You know, an interesting pattern you, you, you might notice if you check out resources on, on this particular text is that Western Christians often treat Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 as an individualistic exhortation to spiritual warfare and preparedness. And yet that completely undermines the reality that the text was written to a local church as a whole, not to an individual Christian. 
And if you look at the context of Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, you also notice that the, this is the final bit of instructions for how the Ephesian church ought to live their life together as a local church. This is, a, this is communal instruction. And yet so often, we as Western Christians, we want to live the Christian life as if it's just me and Jesus. No, he's given you a battalion to fight with. And this battalion, i.e. the local church, is meant to fight alongside you, to cover your vulnerabilities, to defend you when you lose the strength, to fight, to defend you, to get you to safety when you're wounded, to provide and protect you when the evil day comes. And it's an absolute necessity there for you to commit to a church in order to prepare for the evil day. By the way, we have a foundations class coming up on the 21st. Just so you know, it's a prerequisite for membership here. Even if our church isn't a great fit for you, that's, that's fine. We understand. We can help you find another church. You need to commit to a church. It doesn't need to be this one, but you need to commit to a church. Next, to find your group. Find your group. And here I want to encourage you to find a a group of people within our church wherein you can experience a deeper friendship and fellowship than you do with the whole. Indeed, you do need a church. You need the formal covenant accountability that comes with church membership. You need to submit yourselves to the care of pastors and the discipline of a church. See Matthew 18, 15 through 20 and Hebrews 18, 17 there. And yet, even in a church as small as ours, you can't be relationally intimate with everyone. This is part of the reason that we have community groups. There needs to be a small group of people who know you more deeply, who know your particular struggles, know your temptations, know your besetting sins, who know your sorrows, who know your story. And if you don't have that, you're you're making yourself more vulnerable on the evil day. Next, train yourself for godliness. Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, the Apostle Paul says this, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. We in perishable, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 1 Timothy 4, 7, Paul tells young Timothy, train yourself for godliness. Some of you have gone through the the, the rigors of basic training. Join the Air Force or the, the Army. Maybe you're very disciplined and, and you're pursued of physical health, exercising. Some of you have... Uh, trained and run marathons. I don't have any idea why you would do such a thing to yourself. If anything could be characterized as the evil day, it's probably marathons. It's horrible. But you've trained and, and disciplined your body to prepare for that day. I think that's so incredibly important. Personally, every week I train. I do squats, deadlifts, bench press, overhead press, kettlebell swings, chin-ups, all that. I, I believe it's so important. I have goals for how much I want to lift and do for all those, those lifts, and, and I, I believe it's so important. I train my body. I discipline my body, and I think that's so incredibly important. And Paul tells us to approach our pursuit of godliness in a similar manner, to, to not drift through the Christian life without intentionality, without discipline, without training. And what's more is that Paul actually tells us that the pursuit of spiritual training is actually more important than our pursuit of, of physical training. On into 1 Timothy 4.8, he says that while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And so I ask you, are you giving yourself to spiritual disciplines? Are you denying yourself daily? When you wake wake up in the morning, don't roll over in the covers and say, I'll pray later. Wake up, deny yourself. Wake up and read the scriptures. Give yourself to disciplines of daily prayer. Read good books on the scriptures. Fast. Do family worship. Husbands and dads, are you leading your family in worship? 
Do you read the Bible and pray with your family? Are you teaching your, your children through the use of good, a good catechism and, and teaching them good hymns? For, for all of us, are, are, are you faithfully and regularly attending your community group and gatherings on Sundays? Are you practicing self-denial? Are you training yourself for godliness so that when the evil day comes, you're prepared for it? Lastly, arm yourself with the truth. And this, uh, this is certainly included in the previous exhortation, but it kind of narrows in on Scripture intake because when the evil day comes, you need to know the truth of God's Word to thus be armed with it to fight against the enemy. The evil day came for Jesus when he was tested in the wilderness after his baptism. You can read about this in Matthew 4. Jesus is fasting and praying for 40 days and nights, and, and, and so Satan comes to him in the wilderness, and he tries to tempt him, and he, and he gives Jesus three different temptations, and each time Jesus responds with the word of God, the sword of the Spirit, to fight back against the devil's attack. And you know, what, part of what's so interesting about that is Satan actually comes to Jesus quoting scripture to him. Now that, that will mess you up. Okay, so Satan, it sounds as if Satan is being biblical. That's frightening to think of, isn't it? It sounds like he's being biblical. He quotes particular verses. And so part of what I want you to, to, to recognize and remember is this. I remember a few years ago, I was sitting in a, a hermeneutics seminar with a with a, uh, a biblical scholar, and he said this. He said, in Matthew 4, Jesus didn't just use Scripture. Satan did that. Jesus used Scripture rightly interpreted. And so, you see, it's not simply enough to know what Scripture says. You've got to rightly interpret it. You've got to understand it. You've got to believe the biblical doctrines that come from it because anyone can quote Scripture Anyone can quote it out of context and thus completely misapply what it says. The truth in God's word is found as it's rightly interpreted and understood. Thus arm yourselves with the truth of God's word, rightly interpreted, rightly understood, with right doctrine. And those are just a few ways, a few things that we can do to prepare for the evil day. But then what about those of us for whom the evil day has come We've already met with the great sorrows or, or difficulties of our lives. We've already faced temptation, accusation, deception, and really, not just for those of us who have already faced them, but for those of us who have failed in the face of them, or at least those who feel like they didn't quite succeed. Inevitably, those, those kinds of days will come. For all of us, the day is coming where we will fail miserably, undeniably, inexcusably, you will fail. You will commit sin that you didn't even think you were capable of, and you will writhe in guilt and cower in shame, not being able to look at yourself in the mirror, not being totally sure that you can recover from this one. But I want to tell you this morning that you can and some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but some of you do. Not quite sure you'll ever be able to pick the, the pieces of your life and put them back together, but, but you can. You can recover. You can be healed. You can be restored. That's the business our God is in. You might think of the Apostle Peter, whom Christ foretold him. He was going to Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. And he did. It was an utter failure of loyalty to Christ. Jesus said to him in Luke 20, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Turn again, strengthen your brothers. And you know the story. He denied Christ. He failed miserably, undeniably, inexplicably. failed. And yet Christ prayed for him. Christ was there to forgive him, to restore him, to heal him, renew him. And so he was turned and he strengthened the brothers. And if you can see something of your reflection in Peter, this. 
Savior is standing right now at the right hand of God, praying for you, pleading precious Calvary for your full acquittal, interceding for you, may not finally or fully fail, and he will leave you, he will never forsake you. And so you, like Peter, even after your you can collapse in the arms and strong arms of Jesus, and he will cover you, and he will come you, and he will uphold you. Your failure does not need to be the defining thing in your life. Satan will tell you that it does, but Christ can be the defining factor in your life. His love can be the defining factor in your life. His grace and kindness and forgiveness can be the defining factor of your life now and forevermore. And so run to him, collapse in his strong arms by faith, and from there you can begin to prepare for the next evil day. Because it will come. But the best place to start is here, now, running to Jesus, collapsing in his arms, returning to him. Let his heart, his love, his suffering, his resurrection, his ascension, his intercession be your strength and security in life. And if it is, you will stand firm in the next evil day. I must be strengthened in Christ, and do all that we can to prepare for the evil day. Take up the Lord's armor. Prepare for the the evil day of the enemy's attack, and do all that you can to stand strong. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word, its encouragements, its exhortations, and the strength that we receive and derive from it by the presence and power of the Spirit. We pray for help now from the Spirit to live according to what we've heard from your word today so that we might bring much glory to you, much good to ourselves, and much good to that we've been called to love and serve in our mission here at Veritas. Glorify yourself in us, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.